I got criticized for calling Putin a war criminal. Well, the truth of the matter, you saw what happened in Vuka. This warrants him, he is a war criminal. But we have to gather the information. We have to continue to provide Ukraine with the weapons they need to continue the fight. And we have to gather all the detail so this can be an actual have a war crime trial. This guy is brutal. And what's happening in Vuka is outrageous. And everyone's seen it. Up to Allah. No, I think it is a war crime. That was President Biden on Monday, doubling down on his charge that Vladimir Putin's Russian forces are committing war crimes in Ukraine. Biden referenced the grotesque images emerging from Bukha, showing Ukrainian citizens, their hands tied behind their backs, shot and killed by Russian soldiers, their bodies dumped on the streets. Eyewitnesses described the discovery of mass graves and reports of looting, rape, and other atrocities. Coming on top of Russian missile strikes on a maternity ward and other residential areas, the latest evidence would seem to cry out for a full-scale investigation for war crimes. But how would a war crimes prosecution actually work? And is there any realistic chance that Putin himself will be held accountable? We'll talk to Stephen Rapp formerly served at the State Department as U.S. Ambassador at Large for War Crimes on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a Senior Counsel at States United. So we've all been watching for over a month now the horrible images coming out of Ukraine as a result of the Russian invasion. But you do have to wonder if these Buka images are a game changer. They are so graphic and so real. And, you know, unlike, say, shots of um, or images of bombings in cities and residential areas, because you don't know what the target was, what the intention was. It's pretty clear when you see these photos and the video that's emerged that these were people, civilians, who were killed in close range by Russian soldiers. And when you see the hands tied behind their back, the bodies dumped on the streets, it would seem pretty powerful evidence on its face of real-life war crimes. Yeah, I don't think the hard thing is going to be gathering that evidence, and it's going on right now. I read in the Washington Post, I think, this morning that uh, the Ukrainians have something like 50,000 investigators fanned out across uh, the country, and in particular, those areas where the Russians were committing these uh, these crimes, interviewing you know, victims and, and the families of people who, who were killed and methodically taking it down in their, in their computers, very, very detailed questioning. The question is, what are they going to do with all of that evidence? And as you raised before, will they be able to actually bring prosecutions against the perpetrators of these crimes? And uh, I think that the jury is is out on that. But I, I wanted to just mention something we were talking before the podcast about Volodymyr Zelensky's speech uh, to the UN Security Council earlier today um, on Tuesday. And um, the pictures are incredibly powerful and I think have rallied the international community. But once again, Zelensky 
has just been masterful at tailoring his message to his audience and appealing to the conscience of the international community. And in this particular case, you know, first of all, he laid out these terrible crimes, talking about, you know, Russians severing people's limbs. You know, I've got just a couple of quotes from his speech here today. I was obviously delivered in Ukrainian with a translator, but, uh, you know, some of uh, what he had to say was so powerful. I just want to quote some of it. Some of these victims, quote, were shot on the streets. Others were thrown into wells, so they died there suffering. They were killed in their apartments, houses, blown up by grenades. Civilians were crushed by tanks while sitting in their cars. The Russians cut off limbs, slashed their throats. Women were raped and killed in front of their children. Their tongues were pulled out only because the aggressor did not hear what they wanted to hear from them. This is not different from other terrorists such as ISIS. And here it is done by a member of the United Nations Security Council. Exactly. And and that, that was the point I wanted to make, because this is a member of our body. This is a member of, of the UN. And then he went on to say, let me remind you, Article 1, Chapter 1 of the UN Charter. What is the purpose of our organization? The purpose is to maintain peace uh, and make sure peace is adhered to. And now the charter is being violated literally, starting with Article 1. And if so, what is the point of all of the ar- other articles? He didn't need to say, what is the point of all of you being here? Well, he sort of did say that. Ladies and gentlemen, are you ready to close the do- the UN, he right. asked, to right. at the UN. Do you think right. it's time for international order is gone? I mean, so uh, really, um, can't really get powerful more stuff. Than that. Yeah. And of course, Victoria, you know, you reminded me before that you actually have done some of these uh, these investigations earlier in your career, I think in Rwanda. Is that right? It was in Guinea. Uh, so it was uh, the Sierra Leone and uh, civil war. And many of the refugees from that civil war spilled over into into nations kind of surrounding Sierra Leone. And it was a war that was characterized by kind of a, an incredible brutality against civilians, including mass amputations, if you can believe it. Um, they would amputate the hands of uh, mostly women, but um, also children and and others. And uh, so I, uh, during a trip over there as part of a kind of a refugee policy, I uh, investigated and interviewed a bunch of those victims. It's very, very, very difficult work. And it's also incredibly difficult to bring war crime prosecutions. The standard of evidence is not dissimilar to just proving a criminal case in a U.S. court of law. So the fact that Ukraine is already gathering this evidence, the fact that they're doing it meticulously actually really significantly increases the likelihood that there may ultimately be a prosecution, although it may be years or even decades away from any of these cases being able to go into an actual court and to actually see people prosecuted and held responsible for these things. I was also struck by how many of these war crimes are being committed in the in the modern era and the fact that they're being committed in a country that has satellites and drones literally filming some of this happening and able to prove and demonstrate how and when that happened the fact is that these these crimes are occurring in in a country where there are drones and satellites watching what's going on early in the bucha in the allegations of a war crimes in Bucha, the Russians attempted to say it wasn't us. It was faked. They're still saying and they're that, still saying by it, the way. But, yeah, they were saying that today at the UN. But the New York Times actually managed to obtain satellite footage of the road 
where the bodies were dumped and demonstrate using that satellite footage that those bodies first appeared on the road when the town was controlled by the Russians. Uh, that's the sort of thing that you can't get away from. And that's the sort of thing that proves cases in an international criminal court. And uh, we're going to get into this with our guest, Ambassador Stephen Rapp. But it is worth noting that we, the United States, are not a member of the International Criminal Court, presumably because the Senate, by a two-thirds vote, which is needed for treaties, uh, would not approve. Um, you worked in the Senate for years, Victoria. What what was the problem? Well, uh, the the problem is that a lot of people are afraid that the International Criminal Court would go after Americans for violating or for committing war crimes. And worse yet, I mean, and perhaps Americans should be prosecuted for committing war crimes when they do commit war crimes. I think what a lot of people are worried about is kind of politicized efforts to go after Americans who've committed war crimes. Remember, much of this happened in the wake of kind of post 9-11 Guantanamo torture allegations. And there's a, an intense level of concern that certain members of the former administration may no longer be able to take vacations for fear that they might get hauled in front of the ICC. Of the Bush administration. Right. Yeah. But this taps into a deep strain of suspicion, particularly on the right, of, of international organizations. And, you know, I mean, there's the black helicopter crowd, but, but it's, it's a broader suspicion um, of these kinds of international organizations uh, on the right. And so you wonder whether after the international and the, and the Western in particular response to the war in Ukraine, um, if some of those attitudes in this country uh, might shift I don't know. I'm not particularly hopeful about it. But this is all happening in, in a different context where the international community has come together to deal with um, a crisis like we haven't seen uh, in a very long time. So it'll be interesting to see if that has any impact at all going forward. Even though the United States is not a member of the ICC, it can and probably very likely is supporting the prosecution efforts before the ICC. The FBI has a, a kind of a well-known and well-established international investigative arm. I'm virtually certain that if security permitting, that FBI teams are already in Ukraine gathering evidence of war crimes that will be used to present in front of the ICC. It's a good question to ask, and I think I will um, uh, forward an email to the FBI today to see if we can get a response. But, you know, look, we were talking a minute ago about Zelensky's speech and, you know, his laying out, uh, you know, the horrors of, of what the Russians have inflicted. But I don't get the sense from listening to it that his real purpose was to get a war crimes prosecution. He was using this to further his real goal, which is to get the weapons he needs to fight the Russians. And as we've said before, I think as this war goes on and more and more graphic images like Bukha emerge, it's going to increase the moral pressure on the Biden administration to step up further and provide more powerful weapons to the Ukrainians. And by the way, in that clip that we ran at the beginning of the show from Biden, he made a point of we need to get more weapons to Ukraine. And it, it makes the point that above all else, in some ways, it is the shipment of weapons uh, to the Ukrainians that has made a difference uh, more than economic sanctions, which is a kind of a, lo a longer term play. But the weapons that we've gotten to the Ukrainians, and of course, their fierce resistance and courage 
has driven the Russians out of the northern areas of of Ukraine. So um, it's been hugely effective. And you can understand why this is what Zelensky is asking for above above all. But I think we shouldn't kid ourselves about what Zelensky is asking for. He's asking for more than weapons. He's asking for admission into NATO and affirmative NATO and American boots on the ground or offensive weapons in in his hands. Well, he's willing to give up admission into NATO. What he's asking for is security guarantees from essentially the same, uh, a group of countries that are in NATO. And actually, you're raising an interesting point, because one thing that I think has been overshadowed in, uh, you know, the really courageous, inspirational behavior of Zelensky is Zelensky, the diplomat. All along, from the very beginning of this, he has been willing to sit down with Putin, to negotiate, to compromise it's pretty extraordinary to see the sort of kind of almost dual-hatted, the warrior and the diplomat in the same person um, as his country um, is, you know, is is being literally destroyed. As he ratchets up the rhetoric, uh, it seems to me that the negotiating ramp is, you know, increasingly <laughs> limited. If not, you know, there's no there's no entry there. I mean, how do you sit down with negotiations and make any concessions to a country and a leader who's done the kind of things that that Zelensky has just laid out to the U.N.? I think in some partner. ways you need a partner. <laughs> Well, yeah, I think in some ways, Buka may have uh, we haven't heard much in the last few days about the negotiations between the Russians and the Ukrainians. There was glimmers of, of hope last week. But I would think, if anything, these images have set that back uh, even further, which means that this is a war that could go on for quite some time. So just w- one more note worth mentioning, in addition to the satellites, is that if I were a Russian soldier who was using a cell phone or any form of modern technology in the Buha region before the withdrawal, I would be very, very worried that the records of that use are going to land in the hands of a criminal prosecutor. Uh, on that note, we do have an important guest here who knows as much about war crimes uh, and uh, war crime prosecutions as anybody, the former ambassador at large for war crimes. So let's get to it. We are now joined by Stephen Rapp. Stephen Rapp was the ambassador at large for war crimes at the State Department under President Obama. He's a former U.S. attorney in Iowa and is a specialist on the whole subject of war crimes. Uh, Ambassador, welcome to Skullduggery. Good to be with you. In between Iowa and being an ambassador, I also prosecuted in the Rwanda genocide and the crimes in West uh, West Africa, bringing the case against Charles uh, Taylor and, and seeing his conviction uh, for war crimes and crimes against humanity and a 50-year sentence. So that's why I ended up going to the State Department to work on this and keep working on it for the last six years uh, with the support of the Holocaust Museum. And- so basically, we have uh, all seen those horrific images out of uh, Buka. And uh, we've heard from uh, President Zelensky on uh, Tuesday talking about the Russian atrocities. We've heard President Biden call these war crimes, as has Secretary of State Blinken. In your view, based on what we've seen so far, is this a prima facie case of war crimes? And if so, where do things go from here? How does 
the evidence we've seen so far lead to a potential war crimes prosecution? Well, there's certainly prima facie means enough to, enough to charge, and, and there is that. Uh, uh, frankly, uh, looking at these scenes of, of where the victims were lying and how they were how they were shot and where they were shot, and the fact that they weren't combatants, uh, I think one can reasonably conclude that that, that these are uh, war crimes because they're uh, you know acts of violence against people who aren't engaged in the in the hostilities and and even when somebody is engaged in hostilities if they become a prisoner you can't do these kinds of things to people and so the, these are uh, war crimes the challenge uh, uh, often that we have uh, particularly when we're dealing with situations uh, you know like Syria or Myanmar or uh, Ethiopia or wherever uh, these days is there's no court to take it to. We, we don't have that problem in Ukraine. The ICC has jurisdiction. It gave that jurisdiction to the ICC. The Ukraine government did about eight years ago and uh, for war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide. And um, because 41 countries then referred it to the prosecutor, the prosecutors commenced an investigation and can uh, uh, proceed against those responsible for these war crimes right up to President Vladimir Putin. The Ukrainians themselves have, uh, have jurisdiction. It's crimes in their territory. They have statutes that would enable it. Uh, they've been investigating cases in the Donbass, uh, although they've not been su successful in obtaining any arrests. Now, however, um, there will be individuals that I think will become susceptible to arrest, prisoners taken in the field, people who may confess, uh, people who may testify against others. Uh, the Ukrainians will have an ability to potentially hold some people responsible in, in their national system in the near future. The challenge for the ICC to go back to that is, uh, even though they have jurisdiction, the challenge we always have with, with war crimes going after high-level people, and that's really the job of the ICC or international tribunals, is tying those acts on the ground to the high-level guy who obviously isn't doing the shooting and is some distance away. Of course, his, he and his government are denying that any of it is true, which, which actually doesn't help their case. It's possible to hold them responsible if they're up the chain of command, if they fail to take action to prevent or punish this kind of conduct. And uh, at least at the international level, that's one way in which we can reach high-level individuals when there's a direct line of command. On the other hand, these could have been committed by irregulars or by Chechen forces or who knows whom. So th there does, there's a level of proof that has to be uh, surmounted when you deal with these interpersonal crimes. I wanted to follow up on what you said before about some possibility that, that the Ukrainian government would be able to uh, detain people, Russian soldiers, and prosecute them, actually try them or make sure that they're tried for, for war crimes. But a lot of the people who are responsible for these crimes probably have gotten away. And then, of course, up the chain, they're not, they never were in Ukraine. They were, they're in, in Russia. So isn't that the central challenge here? At the end of the day, the people who are most responsible for what happened on the ground in Ukraine, they can be indicted, they can be charged, maybe they can be tried in absentia, but you're never going to get them in a courtroom, right? That is the central challenge. That's been the uh, challenge for uh, the Ukrainians. That's the challenge, frankly, for the, the Dutch who've been prosecuting the MH17 shootdown. They've had to do an in absentia trial. Uh, because obviously Russia isn't giving up the people uh, and, and you can't get, uh, uh, you know, cooperation in Luhansk and Donetsk, the separatist areas where they were firing the missiles from. Uh, so you do have that, that challenge. I, I'm suggesting in this battlefield, 
there may be opportunities sometimes when units are surrounded, uh, prisoners are taken to eventually identify some proper suspects. Understand most of them are gonna be prisoners of war that should be released at the end and, and, and you can't, uh, they're not required to answer questions, uh, but quite often they do and, and quite often they're amongst them, people who were quite uncomfortable with what was being done, didn't wanna be there in the first place. So there may be some ability to develop some cases there at the lower level. Do keep in mind the Ukrainians I can't prosecute Putin, they can't prosecute Lavrov, they can't prosecute the three or four top leaders in a national court of a third country. There's international law on that. And to get to those top guys, at least to be able to charge them, uh, you have to go to an international court. Now, as I say, the ICC is there. Uh, but when you deal with that question, then is how does the ICC ever get their hands on them? And I think this is a, the most challenging case we've ever had. But, you know, we did, I mentioned Charles Taylor, who was indicted by my predecessor. We got him arrested three years later uh, in Nigeria. Uh, uh, Milosevic was uh, charged uh, uh, when he was in power as the president of Yugoslavia. Uh, you know, people said, how are you ever going to get him in? And within, within 15 months, he couldn't steal enough votes to get reelected. And uh, uh, within 25 months of his indictment, he was on the way to The Hague. Uh, his country turned him over. Uh, in order to get back in the good graces of the international community, get sanctions off, get aid flowing, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So there is some possibility you can use some of those tools, particularly if the individual uh, is, is pushed aside by some of the people who may have been his own supporters but view him as a liability. Uh, Putin seems to be a much tougher kind of individual uh, who doesn't let his defense secretary come within 60 feet of him. So it, it is a little hard to envision that. One should uh, never, never say never. I mean, the Russians got rid of Khrushchev after after uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis. So, you know, there is that that, that possibility, and, and he will become a pariah if that happens. But it will take that sort of leverage, that use of the sanctions, use of other things, to get him. And of course, there'll be a lot of pressure to, uh, if if the conflict ends uh, to take those off uh, for the sake of peace and for the sake of uh, uh, you know getting the oil flowing and avoiding the economic dislocation in the West. And so, uh, you know, uh, really uh, holding uh, conditions uh, in hand to get cooperation uh, may, may, be, may be challenging, but that's what it will take. That's where it succeeded, where it eventually became profoundly in the interest of this guy's allies to turn him in. But just to be clear here, in order for war crimes against those most responsible, starting with Vladimir Putin, there has to be regime change in Russia. There doesn't have to be regime change to charge him. <laughs> there wasn't regime change right. when we charged Charles Taylor or Milosevic or Bashir. Uh, but in order to actually collar him, we did have Kenya. Uh, President uh, Kenyatta actually appeared voluntarily before the court for crimes allegedly committed before his uh, term in office. But that was a country that was in a much weaker position. And in the end, of course, he was able to beat the case. So, uh, you know, it, it is very hard to get uh, uh, someone in custody. I'm one who believes it's worth it. I mean, you know, you can say we didn't arrest Mladic for 16 years. <laughs> On the other hand, he couldn't go anywhere. He couldn't go out and do another Shrevenica. Uh, And so there are advantages to uh, putting uh, this, uh, this kind of charge on an individual if you have the evidence. I, I don't want to, you know, I'm, I'm sort of getting ahead in terms of bu building the evidence up to, up, up to Putin, which is more complicated when it comes to these acts like we see in Busha less complicated when it comes to like the bombardment of Mariupol. But there, of course, you've got the ambiguity of, in bombing of what they were aiming at. 
and proving that it's a war crime in bombing, which of course US does, Israel does, others do in order to take on uh, insurgents or whatever and do it in compliance with the laws of war. And even though there can be a lot of civilian damage, those cases sometimes, you know, when you look at them and say, there, there aren't any crimes here. But uh, in the Russian situation, the kind of thing they did in Chechnya, the kind of thing they did for Assad in, in, in Syria, and this kind of thing, this sort of carpet bombing, this besieging of areas, this denial of humanitarian access, food, medicine, I, I think that uh, we've reached the degree uh, where, the, where we can charge those war crimes. And those are frankly directly attributable to the, to the high command and, and to the commander in chief Russian forces. To most uh, casual observers, there seems to have been credible allegations that the Russian army and possibly Putin have been involved in some form of war crimes for far longer than just the last month, that there have been allegations of war crimes in Crimea, in Georgia, in Syria, all perpetrated by the Russian army and possibly uh, directly tied to Putin's orders. Isn't the failure of the ICC and the international community to have done anything about it for the last decade responsible for or at least partially responsible for what's going on today? Yes, uh, I, I think that's that's fair to say. Uh, do keep in mind that quite often the ICC doesn't have jurisdiction. They don't have any piece of Syria at all. And so, and that's the, where the worst crimes have been committed of this uh, of this 21st century, and, and uh, with 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 Russian fingerprints all over them, and sometimes Russian direct perpetration uh, in terms of attacks on hospitals, etc. But there wasn't an ICC jurisdiction to take it. Uh, there has been jurisdiction over Georgia for some years. There was jurisdiction over the crimes in the Donbass because of what Ukraine had done in. Uh, in referring itself to the ICC several years ago, the prosecutor in those situations, because he didn't have a referral of a state party, had to go to court. And the prior prosecutor said that I don't have the resources to push this forward at this time. And, and so um, now, of course, we were talking about crimes in, in, in Georgia and Donbass that are, that are bad, but they aren't in, in, the, in the nature of, uh, of an, uh, an all-out uh, invasion and, and, and bombardment of of a country of, of uh, you know, second, I guess the largest country, you don't count Russia, uh, is solely in Europe. And you know, it's incredible uh, that they're doing this. And, and the massive nature of this, I think, makes this uh, quite a bit more serious than the other thing. But you're quite right about the point that, uh, that, that the extent we want these uh, norms to be at work and, and to be followed, we have to be enforcing them. And, and we prosecutors always you know, prosecute the last case to prevent the next. And if people really get the impression that if they do the crime, they're gonna do the time, a lot fewer will do the crime. I mean, they're obviously sociopaths that will do it anyway, but uh, it's what keeps our lives from being nasty, brutish, and short in countries with good systems of law. Otherwise, uh, you couldn't go out on the streets. And so, you know, that uh, uh, is what we're trying to do here. And in the last decade, the whole thing has been shot to pieces, uh, beginning particularly with, with Syria and what it's been possible to get away with there. Uh, crimes, uh, you know, <laughs> poison gas. I mean, we had a couple incidents of uh, uh, use in conflict uh, since World War One, but you know, that's a norm that we've tried to, you know, uh, enforce the rules against. Uh, yeah, attacks on hospitals. That's the oldest norm in international law that came from the Geneva Convention of 1863. You know, etc. This is uh, and boom, you know, every hospital in Aleppo is gone. No, no enforcement. I'm interested in, and I'm not. I'm not doubting it, but I want to understand it. What is the evidence that war crimes prosecutions are a deterrent effect? I mean, when you look back 
you know, say, uh, since World War II. I know it's hard to prove a negative, but in this period where there have not been as many effective war crimes prosecutions, do you see that there's a direct correlation between that and regimes uh, perpetrating these kinds of war crimes? I mean, how do you, how do you sort of assess the effectiveness of these prosecutions over, over time? And proving a, the deterrent effect is, is, is a challenging one for any kind of law enforcement thing. Uh, and, and it's more complicated than that. But a fair and effective prosecution as part of an overall strategy, you know, I, I think, did begin reducing the crime rate in the United States in the 90s. Gotten away from some of that, and boom, it's gone the other way. You know, there are ways uh, that uh, that I think this does have an effect. Uh, Catherine Sinking, who's at Harvard uh, uh, Kennedy School, has written a book about that shows that there has been in societies that have confronted uh, these war crimes and and then gone through a transition, uh, lesser uh, amounts of, of physical violence and crimes of violence in those societies afterwards from, from those that said, oh, we'll just turn the page <laughs> because then everybody says, well, like I've killed a hundred, uh, you know, what are you trying to do to me? I only killed three, you know, and so it becomes much harder to, to enforce the law. I did see, and, you know, these, these are around the margins, but, uh, uh, situations where, uh, you know, there were fewer coup d'etat, there were fewer situations where countries were a president, like say the president of Burkina Faso, you know, could have shot people down in the street, killed a thousand demonstrators and stayed in power for a ninth term. And he got on a plane to Morocco instead. Well, obviously, if he shot him down in the street, he'd been the next guy on the poster. Uh, would he have been stayed in power? Well, he's not a very big country. <laughs> you know, he probably have gone to the Hague. So, you know, the, the, there is an impact that we see, and particularly the message in Syria and some of these other situations. You know, Myanmar, we never held anybody responsible for all the crimes committed before 2011. And generals thought, hey, you know, we can take power again if we've got to make any kind of compromise with, uh, with Aung San Suu Kyi. And, you know, uh, they're back and uh, in, in doing the horrible things and killing people in the street because they, they were never held responsible for, uh, for anything before that. And we didn't make them. We we're so happy to make any progress at all, though I didn't agree with my colleagues who were, who were so, so uh, you know, rosy-eyed about it. I, we, we really needed to do more to at least acknowledge what had happened beforehand, because if you don't, uh, it's just going to happen again, and, that's, and that doesn't protect anybody. So, Ambassador, you mentioned in order to hold higher-level officials responsible, there has to be a prosecution by the International Criminal Court in The Hague. But the United States is not a member of the International Criminal Court. Why is that? And does that impair or impede or make it more difficult for the United States to participate, gather, collect evidence to support a prosecution before a court that we are not a signator to? Well, let me let me just sort of start in reverse before we get back to why we're not in. There's uh, our law allows under the Dodd Amendment to the Amer uh, American Service Members Protection Act, which passed with three quarter majorities in Congress in 2002. The United States can assist the ICC in any case involving a, a non-American uh, who's alleged to be responsible for genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity. And, and we did that during the Obama administration, helped the ICC, two of the, their major fugitives surrendered to us. We uh, worked all the diplomacy and, and delivered them to the Hague. Who surrendered oh, to us? I'm sorry? Yes, they surrendered Who? to us. Bosco and Daganda walked into our embassy in, in Rwanda uh, in March of 2013, said, I want to go to the Hague. Uh, he, he was afraid the Rwandans would kill him. Uh, in Congo, we had a reward out on his head, and, and he didn't want to be <laughs> captured for a reward, so he turned himself into us. 
Uh, we then worked all the arrangements with our allies and put him on a plane and flew him to The Hague. Uh, Dominic Unguin, the, uh, the number two guy in the Lord's Resistance Army under Kony, U.S. was in Central African Republic being the kind of intel unit for an African Union mission. He turned himself into us. <laughs> we, uh, it was quite complex diplomacy with the AU, but we got him to The Hague. So we were able to cooperate in that way and put rewards on their heads and provide information, et cetera. And we can do that again. We could send an FBI crew out there to dig the mass grave. Uh, I mean, there's security issues. There's issues of many Americans shot at. We could certainly uh, hire teams to, to go out and, and, and do it. We, you know, there are ways that, uh, that we can uh, assist uh, legally, and, and we should, because the ICC, their budget last year, Last time I looked at their budget and talked to them about their investigative capacity, they had 71 investigators, 16 analysts. They got like 15 situations. And, and when they do things according to what their judges want, it takes them two days to take a single statement. So, you know, how many are they going to send over? A dozen? To deal with, you know, we deal with Busha, we deal with uh, Makaru, but we deal with everything you, the press finds every, every, every hour. Uh, you know, they need help to uh, to put put that together, uh, and other countries are volunteering that. Uh, the prosecutor held a event at the British Embassy, and countries volunteered this and that, one thing or another. So we 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 can join that effort, and and we should. And in political problems, no. Lindsey Graham sponsored a a, a a resolution on the Senate floor. Support the ICC on on Ukraine passed unanimously. You know, this is where the American Service Members Protection Act had three quarters support in the past. And where, uh, as of a year and a half ago, we were sanctioning the prosecutor and pro prohibiting her from using her MasterCard. Uh, so, you know, we, we've obviously changed a bit on that. Why aren't we a member of the ICC? Well, uh, we, we aren't a, a member of, of the ICC. I suppose the most practical reason uh, is even if someone like my former predecessor, like my predecessor, David Sheffer, who represented us at the negotiation, he got uh, President Clinton to sign the treaty. Uh, there was still the challenge of how do you get two thirds vote in the Senate? <laughs> you know, and we can't get, uh, you know, it's hard to get 53 votes for a Supreme Court nominee, let alone 67 votes for a treaty. We're the only country in the world that hasn't ratified the Convention on the Rights of the Child. There's that practical aspect. And there is also the, the aspect that the ICC, we don't want the ICC prosecuting us. We want ourselves to prosecute us. Now, you know, fundamentally, we got it written in that as long as we are genuinely investigating ourselves when we're doing any, when there's any kind of bad thing happen, then the ICC has no jurisdiction. But the fact that they could still come in is something that disturbs us. Uh, on the other hand, they do have jurisdiction over the territory of Ukraine. Now they have jurisdiction over the territory of Afghanistan. And it was in the Afghanistan and the, the torture, the enhanced interrogation that the ICC was looking at us, that of course caused the, uh, uh, the, the Trump administration to, to sanction the ICC. Uh, so obviously it's inconsistent when we say, you don't have jurisdiction over us and we commit an alleged crime in Afghanistan, but we, it, we, the ICC does have jurisdiction over Russia, a non-party, when it commits a crime in, in Ukraine. And that puts us, I think, in a weak position uh, to sort of take the lead on, on this kind of thing. And, and you certainly hear that the U.S., uh, in terms of how it's focusing its language, is, is working with the Ukrainian prosecutor uh, as, as sort of a central contact point. Uh, but uh, uh, I think it's important for us to, to get this right and, and to support the ICC in this situation. 
and in others, and to recognize that, that our protection is uh, uh, as long as we have a strong system of justice and hold anybody who commits a war crime in America to account, uh, or as an American, uh, then we have nothing to worry about. But, uh, but that's not a political reality at this point. At the most, we can be a, a contributing non-party a non-party partner, even as the Republican advisor of the State Department, John Bellinger, describes. Let me ask you a question about the kind of the broader political implications of calling Putin a war criminal or threatening wide-scale uh, prosecutions of Russian higher-ups. You hear pretty regularly uh, a counterpoint to this argument, which is that labeling him a war criminal, threatening to prosecute him, is actually counterproductive towards the bright, broader strategic goal, which is to get Putin to withdraw from Ukraine and to end the war. That putting him in this box is it kind of forces him to just keep going until he wins. What do you make of that counterargument? Well, that, that would have some validity if you thought, <laughs> you know, that if you Sort of reminds me of the no more Mr. Nice Guy thing by the mob boss. <laughs> you know, I might I might kill uh, fewer people tomorrow uh, if you're nice to me today. Uh, are you sure? Uh, no, I mean, there's there's nothing to indicate that, that Putin, I mean, I don't think he fears the ICC. I mean, that's un unfortunate uh, that he doesn't, but uh, he certainly talks about international law. He's given a speech at midnight about how he's going in there because of genocide, et cetera. And it's all about Nazi crimes and everything else as if it's... Uh, you know, 19 uh, is, is 1944 in, in, in Ukraine with, uh, uh, with with the, with the Nazis in there, and and so you know he he is thinking in these <laughs> to some extent in in these terms, but he's not the uh, you know I, I don't think he fears it, and the idea that he would somehow be nicer, that he would somehow make a peace deal. If we wouldn't uh, talk, uh, uh, we would not draw attention to the fact that he's committing mass murder against innocent men, women, and children. I think is is, is crazy. And no, <laughs> you don't do that when you deal with criminals. Uh, you hit them and you hit them again, <laughs> and you uh, keep pressing. You keep pressing uh, the costs. I mean, you know, obviously uh, we have issues with his nuclear weapons and sort of lines that we don't draw. He's not going to create a nuclear war because he's under indictment. He might if we introduced American. Uh, uh, forces uh, uh, up against the Russian border, uh, you know, uh, uh, but but I think the possibility of war crimes, uh, uh, just sort of ignoring accountability, allowing and licensing crimes because somebody is just too friggin' powerful to deal with, uh, is in fact just inviting more crimes. Ambassador Rapp, so we understand the importance of war crime prosecutions for its deterrent effect, uh, for the international community to say out loud that we will not tolerate uh, this kind of uh, behavior. But what about the Ukrainian people? What about the victims of, of these crimes, the people who have lost their loved ones, the people who, whose homes have been destroyed, whose livelihoods have been destroyed? Do war crime prosecutions in any way bring justice to those people? Or is that a completely separate process? And how do we compensate people in Ukraine uh, for the suffering that they're experiencing directly from the same kind of conduct that we're talking about that's the basis for potential war crime prosecutions? Well, I mean, you only have to listen to the Ukrainians on this and, and to their president or the people that speak from, uh, from these, these cities. Uh, they, they see a horrible crime committed against them and they want the perpetrators brought to justice. And, uh, and, and they're calling it war crimes. They're calling it crimes against humanity. They're calling it genocide. That obviously is a, is, is a high standard. Uh, uh, you know, it could get there. Uh, it's, it's not there now, but uh, they, they really do want the justice alternatives. And having prosecuted these cases from Rwanda, 
and from Sierra Leone, you know, when, when, when victims do achieve justice, which is rare, uh, but when they're able to confront the, the powerful individual across the courtroom uh, who did it to them or to their families, it is enormously empowering, as, as they've said to me time and time again. You know, I, I was ground down into the dirt, you know, uh, by those guys, and now I'm standing tall, taller than them you know, in court with the truth on their side and with a, with a system, a global system of justice on their side. So it is uh, very important now. You know, I remember all the amputees in Sierra, in Sierra Leone would say, God, it's so great you win, uh, you know, but, uh, you know, you're not bringing my arms and legs back. Uh, you know, I can't eat judgments, <laughs> you know, et cetera. And so they're obviously uh, seeking uh, reparations and, uh, and more should be done to get that out of sanctioned funds and things like that. And there aren't uh, the connections that, that there should be. Uh, uh, but there are ways that, that resources can be provided. Uh, obviously, uh, there's all, you know, last week they were saying it was $500 you know, billion dollars of the damage. I mean, it's possible to ever collect reparations uh, and, and, and create that burden may, may prevent peace. But you really do have to find ways uh, better than international justice has done, better than our American system has done. Uh, to get uh, to get repair uh, for these victims, uh, and that's an unfinished business, and and that often depends upon the charity of other countries that are willing to cover those costs, and they, you know, technically they, you know, that they they might have other better things they'd like to spend their money on than covering up the covering the responsibility of, of guys with uh, you know four hundred million dollar yachts, uh, but um, you know, obviously, if we get to any of that, that would be great place uh, uh, to uh, to send the money to, to these uh, victims and survivors. Ambassador, you, you and I first spoke some years ago when you were gathering evidence about war crimes in Syria, and in particular, uh, the, uh, the Caesar photos showing those emaciated, tortured bodies of political prisoners who were killed inside uh, Assad's uh, prisons. Yet, there have been no, uh, well, I think if I heard you correctly, the ICC does not have jurisdiction in Syria, so it can't bring cases in Syria. Can you explain why that's the case? Why why there is no jurisdiction in Syria? And if that's correct, and I assume it is, you know, doesn't that essentially give a free pass to the entire Assad regime uh, for what they have done? Well, uh, one, there's no jurisdiction because Syria is not a ratifying state. Uh, and uh, Just as the United States is not a ratifying state. Yeah, yeah to, the, to the Security Council. We did that on, on, on Sudan and Libya. Uh, the Russians vetoed it on Syria. Uh, we got 13 votes for it. So French resolution, 13 to 15 on the Security Council. Two no's, uh, Russia, China vetoes. It went down. So that's why they don't have jurisdiction. And, uh, and so um, what we've had to do in the Syrian context is to go to third countries and try to pursue cases. And uh, it's been one of, the, uh, of one of the remarkable things that particularly in Germany, but in other countries as well, uh, in part because they have 800,000 uh, uh, Syrian refugees and a lot of the evidence, uh, but with the benefit of the Caesar photos and with the evidence of groups like uh, CIJA, which I chair, which brought on a million pages of Syrian regime documents, the orders to arrest these people and detain them and torture them. Uh, there, you know, it's possible to uh, prosecute a, a colonel who headed interrogation at one of the facilities in, in Damascus in 2012. 
and he was sentenced in January to life for 27 murders and implication of thousands of acts of torture. And, and there are other cases going forth in Germany, there are uh, cases in, in France, you know, potential cases even in the US, though generally it requires that the, the perp be found in, found in the country that's doing the prosecution. Assad's not turning up in Germany anytime soon. Uh, he can't be prosecuted by a third state. Uh, but, you know, there's a general in Vienna, we're trying to get them to prosecute. There are some people that, are, uh, that, that can be pursued in these third states. Uh, that, that's that's imperfect justice, but I will say, being with the Syrians uh, in 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 Koblenz, where this case was, that they were thrilled to finally have something uh, where somebody had had to, to answer, uh, and and so that's that's what you have to do as kind of the default. Uh, that situation, keep in mind, is the Ukraine's all different. <laughs> uh, Ukraine, of course, is the victim here. Syria is not the victim. Not the Syrian government isn't. Them. And and so Ukraine sent itself to the ICC. Obviously, Assad's not going to send uh, uh, Syria to the ICC. So that's that that is the distinction here. Uh, and uh, and and then of course the prosecutor has forty one countries. <laughs> incredible have, have asked him to take up the case formally, referred it, which is required in these situations. And so it's a, a, a clear case of jurisdiction, and uh, and something can be done. But even then, it of course takes state cooperation, a lot of political leverage, everything else, economic tools, if you're going to get compliance, because it's not enough that you have a court order. You got to have a way to enforce it. In terms of um, the challenge of apprehending, of actually putting on trial individuals who are alleged to have committed war crimes, is, is one option actually charging them or indicting them secretly um, and then if they travel out of their country, travel to other countries, then to arrest them? Has that ever happened before? Yes, I mean, uh, uh, all of these tribunals had the right to, to have sealed arrest warrants. And uh, uh, the Yugoslavia did, tribunal did that and captured some people uh, in, in Bosnia who didn't know they were under indictment. Uh, and so, uh, and the ICC has done that in regards to cases in Africa. Uh, we don't know <laughs> what what the what the sealed arrest warrants are until the arrests are, are made, but um, but that's a that that is an an option, and and often uh, uh, you know you, you end up with this sort of balance: should you put the guy on a travel ban, <laughs> or should you leave him off the travel ban because you'd like to see him travel because you get tolerant, you know? And usually uh, it's a lower standard to get him on the travel ban. So most of the guys you might charge are already not supposed to travel. But they do. I mean, Ali Mamluk is under an arrest warrant in France. Uh, a few months before, it was in Italy, uh, uh, supposedly, uh, you know, in a, in a meeting with an interior minister about uh, fighting ISIS, where, of course, Syrians have been the worst in the world when it came to fighting ISIS. But, you know, sometimes there are places you can collar these guys. So, uh, Ambassador, who has your former job uh, for war crimes at the State Department now? And what is your understanding of what they are doing to support the Ukrainian case here against the Russians? Well, uh, my uh, one of the uh, persons that I had as deputy back in 2012, 2013, 14, uh, Beth Van who was nominated by President uh, uh, Biden last October, was confirmed by the Senate unanimously three weeks ago today. In part, on the same day that Lindsey Graham's uh, unanimous resolution on uh, support of the ICC was uh, was also adopted. Uh, in touch with her last night. Uh, you know, I mean, she's working very hard to you know marshal the resources under which the United States can assist 
the investigations, uh, particularly the Ukrainian prosecutor. But uh, you know, I don't want to speak for the U.S. government before decisions are made. But but obviously, I think as well, finding very uh, concrete ways that we can help the the ICC prosecution, consistent obviously with this with this resolution in the Senate. So I think that will will be happening. Other governments are. Um, uh, Judge Howard Morrison, formerly the ICC, formerly a British military lawyer and, and later defense attorney, who also helped in the Saddam Hussein prosecution. Uh, he's, uh, uh, he's been appointed by the Brits in charge of their efforts uh, to marshal British resources to help the French are, you know, offering up the gendarmerie. Other countries are participating. Of course, they're also potentially looking to investigate and prosecute people in their own countries if somebody turns up there. Uh, but at this time, the focus is help the ICC and then also help the, the Ukraine prosecutor. I should note as well, and I don't want to miss this, you know, one of the things we learned in Syria, uh, you know, UN couldn't go there, uh, you know, even though we had a commission of inquiry, ICC couldn't go there. Syrians can go there. They were there already. And so working with the people in the country and sometimes in the danger zones who are, are professionally trained and know what they're doing, and who uh, can can build the evidence, take the 360 degree shots, et cetera, uh, do things uh, that don't do any harm to the crime scene, that is of enormous value. And, and that's how we've been able to do the Syrian cases. Uh, it was those informal <laughs> sorts of things, sometimes working with uh, external NGOs uh, that, that, that got us our evidence. Uh, here, at least, we've got the local authorities uh, on, on side, but they are, of course, under, under threat themselves and overextended. And, and certainly not present immediately in, in places uh, like, like, uh, like Busha or elsewhere where these crimes have been committed. Final question, Ambassador. How important is it that these war crime prosecutions move forward? Well, it's, it, it's essential, not just, for, not just for the sake of Ukraine, but for the rest of us. Uh, or uh, think about the Poles or the Estonians or, or the Czechs or whomever. I mean, if... Uh, if you can get away with these kinds of crimes, uh, what prevents them from, from, from being uh, uh, committed uh, elsewhere uh, and, and in this situation where we clearly have an international court with jurisdiction? I mean, we really have to be serious as a heart attack about this. And uh, otherwise, uh, in the future, with even sometimes greater challenges, climate change, population, a uh, whole variety of, 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 of potential flashpoints for conflict in the future, if we end up with these kinds of tactics being allowed, then none of us are safe uh, anywhere in the world. Ambassador Rapp, I want to thank you uh, for your insights into this. Uh, it is undoubtedly a, uh, a crucially important issue, and um, you have helped uh, illuminate us all. So thanks a lot okay. for joining us. Good, good to talk. Always, always ready to go on. 